Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would prepare us for yourself and make us more like your son. We pray that you would do this work by your spirit living within us. That your spirit in this moment would stir our hearts uh, and our affections for Jesus, that, that we might see him clearly, we might know him as he is, and uh, through him know you as you love us. Um, we pray that you would do that work in us, this very moment, build up the body of saints gathered here. And uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. But well, we are spending this season of Advent in the prophecy of Malachi. As I, I mentioned last week, Malachi's divided into several spirited conversations between God and his people. And, and the conversations are, are spirited in nature because there is disagreement between them, between God and between his people about what is true, right? God tells his people, I've loved you. And the people respond, how have you loved us? God tells them, you have despised my name. And they respond, how have we despised your name? And this morning, God tells his people, you have made me weary with all your words. And the people reply, how have we made you weary? It's obvious that, that God and his people do not always see eye to eye. Even those filled with his spirit wrestle with him and are often surprised or offended by him. As the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, that the desires of the flesh and are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other. Right? If a person is going to follow God, then there's this certain amount of inner conflict that is inherent to this life of faith. God leads people into uncomfortable places and tells them to stay. He asks anyone who would follow him to pick up their cross and die. The way of Christ is not instinctive. It is learned and confirmed through discipline. But along the way, there are plenty of questions, questions of doubt, how have you loved me? Questions of bewilderment, how have I wearied you? The goal is, is Jesus. God is, is leading his, his questioning children by his spirit into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who came to us in grace and in truth. He is a perfect balance of all things. He's, he's gracious and accommodating. He eats with sinners and converses with miscreants and is not personally threatened. He knows to whom he belongs. And yet, he calls people to repentance, to alter their way of life out of submission to him and his definition of what is good. Right? If any of us is going to follow Christ or be found in him when he returns to, to judge the world in equity and righteousness, then we must learn this, this difficult dance of his. And this section from Malachi, from chapter 2, verse 10 to 3, 5, is our first lesson. And we begin our lesson on, on one side with, with God's insistence upon our singular moral obedience to the way he designed for human life to be lived, which inevitably involves being told that we've done wrong and are being called to live differently, regardless of how personally or culturally challenging that may be. All right, this comes out in the passage 
through God's refusal to accept the sacrifices of his people in verse 13, right? Despite their deviation from the way of Christ, this still was a, a religious people in form. They offered sacrifices regularly and from the outside appeared to be genuinely pursuing God. But something was obviously wrong for no matter how much they pursued God, it felt like God was always outrunning them. They were left feeling abandoned. And in verse 13, it says they, they covered the altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regarded the offering or accepted it with favor. Right? Despite their religious pursuits, God denied them the blessing of himself, of his presence. And the question which is posed in verse 14 is, why? The answer is that they did not take seriously the covenant of marriage. They did not value what God valued. They did not strive to preserve the sanctity of that union to which God serves as witness while all the, while, all the while offering sacrifices to God and wondering in genuine bewilderment why God refused to accept them. Now, scholars disagree about the meaning of verse 16, the best way to translate it, and translations vary greatly in their word choices here. But one way to understand God's condemnation of divorce alongside his condemnation of the covering of one's garment with violence in this verse is that this latter image, the, the covering of a garment with violence, is meant to create the mental picture of a garment splattered with blood of an animal sacrificed in worship to God. The mutual condemnation of divorce and sacrifice, therefore, is this condemnation of the hypocrisy of engaging in both activities, of pretending that you can worship God and casually vi violate his design for marriage. Uh, Tim Keller tells us a, a story about a wise mother who tells her young son to, to clean up the toys strewn across the floor in his room while she helps her younger daughter get dressed and ready for bed. And while she's in the bathroom brushing the, the little girl's teeth, she hears singing down the hall coming from the direction of the living room. And leaving her daughter in the bathroom, she walks down the hall past her son's still dirty room to the living room where her son was attempting to play a toy guitar and sing a hymn they had often sung at church. And when the mother asked, what are you doing? The boy replied, I'm worshiping God. To which the mother responded, I ask you to please clean your room. To which the boy responded, but I'm worshiping God. To which the mother sagely replied, there's no sense worshiping your father when you're disobeying your mother. Right? This is the spirit of what God is saying in refusing to accept the sacrifices of a people who were, for whatever reason, treating the, the covenant of marriage carelessly with disdain. You know, far from the, the modern idea that marriage is intended to bring, bring me self-fulfillment as I enter into it, and, and I should only stay so long as it's working for me, right? God calls us to self-denial in marriage. When both partners demonstrate this deference for the other, then the conditions for safety and endurance and true happiness are manifested. There's a dance that's produced by this act of self-denial in marriage. And, and the reason God is so heavily interested in our maintenance of the marital bond is because the dance of marriage is a reflection of the triune God we worship. Right? In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes this about God. 
The Trinity means that God is, in essence, relational. But the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. And that creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. In this dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love between the three members of the Trinity is what marriage between one man and one woman is intended to reflect. And this intended reflection of God through marriage becomes all the more apparent when we learn that through his spirit, God mysteriously joins two people into one flesh. And he has designed marriage as the union of this man and woman to reflect that mysterious new creation in the production of a new person, a child that looks like both parents and is the embodiment of the spirit's work in making the two one. There's this unity and diversity in marriage expressed in this child, made visible in them, that reflects the unity and diversity of the triune God we worship. It's no wonder, therefore, that outside of some some narrowly permissible reasons for divorce, adultery, abandonment, God does not want men and women pulling apart what he's put together by his spirit. It's an undoing of his work, and it misrepresents him to the world. Now, this is, of course, all pretty intense, as calls to repentance tend to be. This is certainly a call to repentance for much of the world, America not accepted, just as it was to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon and Persia. And yet, this is just one aspect of the moral obedience that God demands of his people. He feels just as strongly about scoffing, gossip, and deception, and greed, and jealousy, and idolatry, and the list goes on. In all these things, God is calling us to repentance. And in all these things, his church should be doing the same, calling sinners to repentance, right? For the kingdom of God has come and we are citizens of it. Christ Jesus himself being our king. So that's one side of, of the Christian life into which the followers of Jesus are called the demand for singular moral obedience. And the other side is the the love and loyalty that familial ties create in order to foster the environment where a person can be called to repentance and yet still feel as though they belong and unconditionally loved. Our passage this morning begins in verse 10 with a question not posed to the community of believers, but posed by them. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Central to Israel's understanding of itself as a unique people in history is the memory of a time when they were not, when they didn't exist. The Lutheran scholar Robert Jensen in his book entitled, Can These Bones Live? remarks that 
We're told nothing at all about why God called Abram and not someone else. We're simply told that there was once a, a tribesman in present day northern Iraq, and then whoosh, the Lord spoke to him. Why Abram? No one knows. All we can say is that if the Lord wanted to be represented in history, it had to start with someone and at some time. That's all we discover. This, this whoosh that, that Jensen humorously employs to describe the creation of a new nation out of an old tribesman and his wife li living in present-day Iraq, that, that whoosh was central to Israel's understanding of itself. This sort of creation ex nihilo of a, of a new nation was variously viewed as a, a new birth with God being their father and a new creation with God being their creator. This, this new beginning, whether with a birth or creation, was common to the 12 often warring tribes of Israel. They could all ask each other, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And the expected answer would be, yes, of course. Remember the whoosh? And this commonality was supposed to provide the basis for love and loyalty in the midst of conflict. Right? A common father and a common beginning were, the, were to be the glue that binds. This is why the perplex, perplexing question is posed in verse 10, why then are we faithless to one another? We have no reason to be. Why do we not create space for one another? Why do we offer no support? Why do we hide from one another? When following Christ and, and waiting for him to come again, the demand for moral obedience is necessary, but repentance will only take place in an environment of unconditional love that's often found only in families and in, in those who share a father and a common birth narrative. Repentance will not happen unless there's space and safety to admit wrong and still be guaranteed love because sin can never break the bond of family. It's an incredibly strong link and God has given the church precisely that kind of commonality. In 1 Peter 2, the church is described as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? In this passage, we're being told we have a common beginning, all of us. Like Abram, we were called. And there was a time when we were not a people, but whoosh, now we are God's people. Right? God gives us the same story in Jesus so that we might love one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and because of this, the church should possess the sort of loyalty that runs in families. This is sort of loyalty where I can think you're wrong, but love you nonetheless. And I'll fight for you because you're mine. It's a familial dynamic that creates the conditions in which we can grow together in our common likeness of Christ as we wait for him to come. But there is one last necessary ingredient for the church that's preparing itself for the return of Christ. Right? We have truth, repentance. We have love and loyalty. But we need humility as well. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, the tone of Malachi's prophecy turns to warning. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant is coming, 
says the Lord of hosts. The imagery here is, is all very threatening and intimidating. God is coming. He's sending people ahead of him to get things ready. And then Malachi poses the question that is the basis for humility in the life of every Christian and in the life of the church itself. Malachi asks, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The question assumes a, a negative answer. No one can endure God's coming. No one can stand when he appears. It's a bit like the question that the band Mumford and Sons poses in their song, White Blank Plage. Can you kneel before the king and say, I'm clean? Can you kneel before the king and say, I'm clean? The answer must be no, right? On our own, we will not be able to stand when he comes to judge the world. This is the, the confession that we must all make that breeds humility necessary for personal and communal growth within the church. Who can endure the day of coming? Who can stand when he appears? Not I, not I, that's for sure. But Malachi assumes this answer and so it turns out that Jesus does too. Because in the next breath, Malachi says that Christ will prepare us for himself. Malachi describes the mission of Christ, a mission that John the Baptist reiterates. He's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Christ came and, and he stood in the judgment for us. He, was struck down and consumed in order that we might be spared. And now he's purifying us for himself through his spirit, through the community of believers, through the sacraments of grace, so that when he comes again this time, we might be ready for him. And so as we wait, we repent. Right? We remain faithful to the orthodox and apostolic teaching that we have inherited. We also work hard to preserve an environment of love and loyalty for people to stay in the church while they're being purified by fire and fuller soap until they shine like gold and silver. And in humility, we eat the meal that he has given us for we'll not be able to stand in the judgment without Christ in us. Right? That's the imagery of what we're doing in this meal. Right? An act of faith, we are taking our savior Jesus Christ into us so that we might kneel before the king and say, I'm clean and stand in the day of judgment. The first time he came, he came not in judgment, but he will return to judge the living and the dead. Will we as a church, the community of believers, be ready for him? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>